Um, and some of you may not have even realized that we used to have orange walls, but they're, they're not orange anymore. Orange, you glad? <laughs> I just had to do that. I, uh, but um, uh, it's not done, actually. It, it kind of Somebody said, well, it looks kind of neat that way, but no, no, it's going all the way up. And uh, uh, just in case, you know, that uh, anything might happen and the wall kind of comes down, I'm in the safe place because I'm where the screen is. So, you know, everything will fall around me and, and not on me. So if, if anybody was worried about that, I'm okay. But um, no, we're, we're doing some, uh, we're, we're trying to keep things simple. We always believe that, uh, you know, things need to be simple. We're, we're trying to put a little bit more light on the subject as well. And, and so there are going to be some lights up here too. But it's one, you know, some things are changed. I mean, look, every barn needs a little paint from time to time. So we all, we all understand that, right? But uh, the important thing is the only thing that's not going to change is the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. That's going to stay the same. So just feel confident in that and know that uh, uh, we, we, <laughs> we've had some come. It's so simple up there. It looks just like bare and you look so by yourself up there. Okay, so now I've got a wall behind me. So, you know, it's not the Western Wall. It's not, you know, the, the one from Israel, but it's... It's pretty. I think it's pretty. So right now it looks like the Alamo, but uh, you know, later on it'll look better. All right, John chapter 12. Let's turn there, please. John chapter 12. Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. The week of Passover, his last week of his earthly ministry before the cross. And what we have seen so far is that Jesus has made it very clear who he is. He's made it very clear that he is the Mashiach, the Messiah of Israel. He has made it clear by the things that he has said and in the authority by which he has said them. He has made it clear by the things that he has done, by healing and delivering. He has shown himself as the Messiah in all of his ways. And something significant happened before the passage that we're going to be looking at. There were some Greeks that came in the court of the Gentiles and asked Philip. In, in essence, they, they said, we would see Jesus. They didn't really ask. They said, we want to see Jesus. And Philip went to Andrew, and both Philip and Andrew brought this request to Jesus. And Jesus began to, to speak concerning his hour, that the hour had come. And it was significant that these were Gentiles, because it is a reminder to us that Jesus did not come just for the Jewish people. 
He came for all, Jew and Gentile. And it is most significant that we know from Scripture that Jesus came unto his own, as we read in John chapter 1, a long time ago. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name, both Jew and Gentile. Significant then, that these Greeks came, and Jesus then would say, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And he speaks of himself as that grain. But then he says here in verse 27, where we're beginning our study today, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it, it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. And now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Words very similar to what he said back in John chapter 3. When he made reference to Moses and the lifting up of the bronze serpent. And, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said signifying what death he should die, and of course that would be lifted up on the cross. <clears throat> but the picture was becoming clear. Jesus had come unto his own, and his own did not receive him, but there were these Greeks, these Gentiles who had come to Philip saying, Sir, we would see Jesus, the harshest of Jesus' critics, the legalists, the Pharisees, and the scribes, as I mentioned last time, we're confirming that, that very thing by saying the world has gone after him. And as we need to understand, the world is made up of Jews and Gentiles. People in the world today, you know, we have subdivided the world into so many different races and nations and, and, and whatnot. Hundreds and hundreds of nations. Thousands and thousands of tribes. But the Bible is still clear. There are really only two distinctions, the Jews and the Gentiles. Makes it simpler that way. When you understand that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But what these Pharisees were confirming and I believe that they were confirming it without even thinking about it. They were confirming what was said in the scriptures in Isaiah 11, for example, Isaiah 11 verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. That's pointing to the Messiah. That's pointing to Jesus. 
the root of Jesse, of course, through the line of David, the son of, of Jesse. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign or a sign of the people to which shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. The Gentiles will seek this. Later on in Isaiah 42 verse 6, God himself speaking to his servant, to his Messiah. He says, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. Not only was Jesus to be the light for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, but he came unto his own that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And then later on in Isaiah 49 verse 6, And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And all we really have to do is go all the way back to the time of Abraham, Abraham, when the promise was given, I will bless them that will bless thee. I will curse them that will curse thee. And with all of this in mind, Jesus said that the hour had come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It was now. Jesus, at the very center of the world. Think about that. Think about where Jesus was when he makes this proclamation, the hour has come, in the very place the very city that the scripture calls the city of God, the city of Zion, the hill that is precious to God, would be the very place that Jesus would give his life. And it is not an accident, it is not a happenstance that today the very focus of all the world's problems is in the very same place. Prophetically. So it was now Jesus at the very center of the world ready to be offered up as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. <clears throat> and he said, except a corn or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And of course he referred to himself as that seed, as that corn of grain that would fall into the ground to be buried after he dies. And three days later he rises from the dead and bears the fruit that we now know today as the church, but more importantly, that all who would believe, Jew and Gentile, as the kingdom of God. But the Lord now turns to his troubled soul he turns to a distressed soul. And that should be no surprise for us if we uh, understand <clears throat> the agony that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he makes it very clear in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Let's never forget one thing. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. can't lower the percentages. 
100% God, 100% man. So he says, my soul now is, is troubled, and what shall I say? By the way, there's only one question here. Some people have said Jesus has asked two questions. No, there's only one question. I'll explain that in a minute. But he says, what shall I say? <clears throat> Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. So understand now that his thoughts were, went directly to Calvary, went directly to where he was going to go, directly to where he was aiming, where he was headed. And we know that the road or the way leading to the cross wouldn't be easy for him to travel. It wouldn't be easy for him to travel at all. A deadly reality lingered. His agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweated drops of blood, where he cried out to his father and he says, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. There was the mockery that were his trials. The mockery of the trial before the Sanhedrin and the mockery of the trial before Pontius Pilate. And eventually the mockery of the judgment of the people. Crucify him. Crucify him. The abuse of his physical body. The beatings, the scourging, the, the application of the crown of thorns, the burdensome weight of his cross the anguish and the excruciating pain of the crucifixion. The horror of the darkness that followed with the bitter taste of death. Make no mistake, death in any context is bitter. It is bitter because that was not God's intention for man. Not to mention his being made sin for us. Consider the weight of what I've just listed for you. And think how light it is in some people's minds to want to change Christianity, Christianity into their own model. Change the word of God because, you know, it's, it's too old-fashioned for our generation, for our time. Without really realizing the, the weight of what Jesus Christ really did for us. that has brought into the hearts of many believers down through the ages this desire to lay down their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When faced with execution, when faced with persecution, when faced with all matters and manners of, of dealings, would the Western church do the same? with a mentality that they've tried to replace 
in the church today. Are we aware of what Jesus bore for us? And as I said, not to mention just even his being made sin for us, as Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He dies bearing our sins. If it were just the sins of this room alone would be heavy enough. Think about the sins of the world. See, we can't wrap our minds around that. But Jesus did. That's why he agonized the way he did. And may I say to you that this is what made up that hour that was come. My hour is come, he said. And he says, now is my soul troubled. That was his distress. But what was Jesus' desire? Consider verse 28. His desire was, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. They, you know, God's voice spoke and they said, well, that was thunder. Others said an angel spake to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now let's first consider what Jesus didn't pray for. Jesus didn't pray to be kept from the hour. In fact, if we were to paraphrase what Jesus said there in, in verse 27, if we were to paraphrase what he said, it would be more like this. And why should I say, Father, save me from this hour? When for this cause I came to this hour. That's why I said there's only one question asked here, not two. Why should I say, Father, save me from this hour, when for this cause I came to this hour? Instead, he prayed that his Father might be glorified. Again, the very same crisis in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus in his humanity cried out to his Father, but Jesus in his divinity said, but not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed for the Father to glorify his own name. Father, he said, glorify thy name. And this is a very significant thing that Jesus would say this because it showed a complete selflessness on Jesus' part. It showed that his primary concern was to complete his purpose and his cause on earth, which was to glorify God his Father by doing exactly what his Father wanted. God the Father was glorified by the very supreme act of obedience of Jesus. That's how he glorified his name. I want you to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. 
when Jesus said, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment, notice, this commandment have I received of my father. And when he has commanded, Jesus always obeyed. We have to understand that it was God the Father who sent his only begotten Son. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read John 3.16 a little later, but you all probably think he's going to read John 3.16 again because I do it every week. But it fits in this, in this scenario here. It fits in this, in this account. God so loved the world that he gave. And listen, I'm not adding to the thought of what was said here by saying God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten son. He gave him as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and he says of Jesus, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, speaking to the Jewish uh, leaders there, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But notice, he didn't say you guys killed him. No, he said being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was always God's intention to send his only begotten son for that very purpose. And yes, they acted in, 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 in their own selfish ways and selfish reasons, but nonetheless, what had to happen, happened. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Paul himself would say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love, he says to the church, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And the implication here is that God offered him his own son up, has given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So all in all, God the Father would be glorified in the cross of Jesus Christ, for he indeed willed that his only begotten Son would die for the sins of men. And Jesus honored and he respected and he obeyed his Father who was glorified by such obedience. But the Father would also be glorified by men seeing the love of God on the cross. Now I read John 3.16. For God so loved the world. If you hear those few words, for God so loved the world, there should be one picture in our mind's eye and in our heart's eye. It is the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, in Him who went to the cross on our behalf, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who would see, those who would believe this glorious truth, whether there that day or over the thousands of years since, bowing down and surrendering their whole lives to God to follow and to obey His will, would bring honor and praise and glory to the Lord. Thus, the name of God would be glorified by the cross. The name of God would be glorified by the cross. Go back to see what God himself said audibly when Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. What did, what did the voice from heaven say? I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I will glorify it, or I have glorified it because he glorified it in the person of Jesus who humbled himself and voluntarily came to this earth, took upon himself flesh, and lived the life that he did going toward the cross. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When? Just a couple of days later on the cross. So we see then in our text that here the Father accepted and approved Jesus' prayer and he did so audibly. God spoke from heaven. And so the Lord answered Jesus' prayer because it was in accordance to his will. This stresses the importance of knowing God's will. Folks, if you want to know God's will, I don't recommend go to a bookstore and, 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 and get all the books on the shelves that say, know God's will. Ten easy steps to know God's will. Maybe there's a book that says 10 hard steps to know God's will. That probably won't sell as best as the other one. You know, 10 easy steps, right? Don't go there and get all those books. Here's the book that tells you what God's will is. But it is important. It is greatly important in knowing God's will. I want you to consider what, what, what John said in 1 John chapter 5. This is his letter to the church, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, there's a lot of preachers that really want to encourage people to, you know, ask anything. Ask God anything, he'll give it to you. They almost make it sound like God is required to give it to you just because you ask. But the last time I checked, it says, according to his will. Whose will is most important? God's will is most important. So if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears us, based on what? According to his will. If we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask. How? According to his will. We know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. How? According to his will. Because his will is much more important than ours. Whose will will Jesus trust? His Father's, always. And so in accepting Jesus' prayer, the Father accepted Jesus' death on behalf of man. He was accepting Jesus' death on behalf of man. 
because he said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And remember what Jesus said in John 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, that's the Father, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So we find now when the audible voice of God is heard, the people standing around, they're confused, some thinking that they merely heard thunder, others thought that an angel had spoken. But Jesus plainly told the people that a voice had spoken for their sakes in order to help them believe that he was the Son of God. He says, not for me, it's for your sakes. You see, one more confirmation that the Father sent his Son. How often did he say, I'm here because my Father sent me. I came from heaven to do his will. Now, it's important to note that this was the third time that God had spoken audibly from heaven. The first time was at Jesus' baptism. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the third time is here. Now, at the time of Jesus' baptism, he heard the voice of God and people heard the voice of God audibly at the commencement of his ministry. Commencement. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son. That was at the climax of his ministry. Here, it was at the crisis of his ministry. Remember the distressed soul. There's a point to this. Thousands had just welcomed Jesus in his entry into Jerusalem. They welcomed him as their earthly king and Messiah, the one who was to bring heaven and utopia to earth. They had really misunderstood Jesus. They all said, here he is, the Messiah. He's going to lead us in victory over the Romans. But that's not why Jesus came. So Jesus had to correct their misunderstanding of his cause. Because he had not come to rule as an earthly king for man. He came to die for man to save man eternally. And Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, clarifies this in a way for us when he says, For even here too, verse 21, 1 Peter 2, 21, For even here too, Hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness." by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And then later in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. But Jesus now needed to clarify 
another misconception or to clear up another misconception. And that one concerns the world. That one concerns the world. Look at verses 31 through 33 now of John chapter 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, the word now is significant. Now. Now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Who is that? A Satan. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Whether men like it or not, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of the death of Christ on a cross, the world has been drawn to him. Whether good or bad, the world has been drawn to him. No one else in all of history has affected the world like Jesus Christ. Think about that. If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. So what we need to understand about what Jesus is saying here about the judgment of this world is that the world is certainly not what it should be, right? The world is not what it should be. It is not what it was created to be. When God created the world, he created it as a perfect and a permanent world. Now because it has fallen apart, that doesn't make God imperfect. God has always been perfect. And what he created was created to be perfect. It was perfect in its past because it was created perfectly. When we look at chapter 1 of the book of Genesis where it talks about creation, practically in every day that he created and whatever it was that he created, it was always said that it was good. And God said it was good, which means it was perfect. But man, after the fall of man in the garden, and again, not God's fault, when God created his prized creation, man, because he created him in his image, gave him something that no other creature had, and that was a will. A free moral agency, if you will. A free will to make a decision. God did not create robots. For love to mean something, it had to come from a heart and a mind that responded to the love of God. But in all of this time, man has ignored and even neglected the fact that the world is no longer perfect. And man today thinks that they're, they're going to make the world better. And even some people in the church think that they're going to to make the world better and then that's the only time that Jesus will come back is when we make it better. How's that going? Is that working? I mean, the world isn't even close to its original state. And it's, it's not perfect, it's not permanent because it will not always be here as it was not always here to begin with. This world is going to be changed and it is going to be recreated as told by Peter again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away 
with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, seeing that this is going to happen, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or conduct and godliness? Looking for. Don't neglect this little passage here. Looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God. Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There is a tremendously large segment of the church today that does not want to look into the scriptures to see the prophetic nature of of, of things that are happening today. They don't want to get into prophecy. They say, oh, you guys that are into prophecy and the rapture of the church and all of that stuff. I mean, that's, you know, you know, that's, that's just, you know, that's just wrong. You know, not to be doing that, you know. Well, what ought we to be doing? Well, you know, you need to open the doors and accept everybody to come in the way they want to live, the way they want to stay, and the way they want to do things. Well, but the Word of God says different. And if a third of the Bible is all about prophecy, and, 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 and really there's a lot more that alludes to the things of prophecy, then we ought to pay attention when Jesus himself says, look up, keep looking up, and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Or that the disciples themselves are crying out to people and saying, listen, the Lord is coming. Don't neglect the very fact that he's going to appear soon. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm coming again. So Peter says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Are we looking? Are we waiting for his appearing? We should be. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus said the judgment for the sins of the world would now be paid in full for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. For all who would receive him. For all who would receive him. Paul made a, uh, Peter, I should say, made a reference to this verse in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where he said, where, where Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the Messiah, the suffering servant, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And Paul in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, would say, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive? Has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses? All trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You see, not only were our sins nailed to the cross of Calvary, but also the power of Satan. The power of Satan was nailed to the cross. Is Satan still active today? Yes, very much so. 
But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, his power is nailed to the cross. Do we still wrestle against principalities and powers? Yes, every day. Every day. But then we've been given a lot of provision. We've been given the armor of God. We've been given the word of God. We've been given the presence of of God. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've been given all of these things. So when we face those trials, we can face them equipped. Are you equipped? You need to be. The power of Satan was defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. For we are told in Hebrews 2 verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus came, put put flesh on himself, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to destroy the devil. And then there's this statement in 1 John 3 verse 8, and let me explain to it. explain it to you because the first part of the verse when you consider the context of the whole chapter here of 1 John 3 what he says about verse 8 is that he that committed sin is of the devil he's talking about those who are committing habitual sins because they've not given their lives to, to Christ so he says he that committeth habitually and, and just it's, 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 the, it's their nature just to continue to commit these sins are of the devil for the devil sinneth from the beginning But notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. So, let me just encourage you as we come to the table of communion this morning that we need to keep the cross at the very center of our lives. We need to keep the understanding of the cross and what Jesus did on that cross at the center of everything we do in this life. Always. Because of what we've seen in the heart of Jesus where he reveals that distress of his soul that the hour was now come and the cross was just around the corner and he was going to give his life and he was going to die and he was going to be the grain of wheat that would be buried, planted. But on the third day, he was going to bear much fruit. For the kingdom of God. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are that fruit. You're certainly a part of the, the greater harvest of fruit that has been gathered over the centuries. And there is yet work to be done. There is yet those who need to come to the Lord. I hope and pray that many will come by the example of your lives in their lives and those that need Jesus may they see Jesus in you and in your lives
Examine yourself today to see that you are in the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful to you for your mercies that are new every morning. And that is not just a nice phrase. That is how you bless us each and every day, even after the struggles of our lives. Your mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness because your compassions, they never fail. And we are so thankful and so blessed to give you this time for you, Lord, to speak to us, to love us, to encourage us, to strengthen us in this time of sharing this, this uh, communion, this bread and this cup. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will encourage our hearts, Lord, more as the day of Christ approaches. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hold on to your cup.